You just saw the whole thing? Go on home, well done. <laughs> Said no pastor ever. <laughs> we're, we're, we're moving into a series, uh, I've uh, titled the series Rockin' It. Today's message is Starting Blocks. And, and you know, yeah, I've noticed uh, this, this kind of this common thing. If you watch many television shows and stuff, I, I love the fact that nowadays you can record them and skip commercials and just watch the ones you want. And, but there seems to be this kind of common thread right now. They're doing this thing where they jump into the middle of a scene, uh, action or whatever, like, and, you're, and you notice you're jumping into the middle of a story and you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? In fact, every once in a while, my wife is, you know, she's always doing two things at once. Uh, she's able to, I'm not. But sometimes she'll, so we'll jump in, we'll, the show will start and say, wait, wait a minute, what, what, did I miss something? And so what they're doing though is they jump you there and then they go, next scene comes and says five years prior and then they jump you back then and build back up to, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning because we're going to jump right into where this guy named Nehemiah, this is, Nehemiah uh, was uh, hanging around this planet about five centuries before Christ, and uh, he's, he, he, we're jumping into a time where, uh, uh, in some respects, the world is pretty settled at this moment. Uh, the, the, we'll talk more about this, but the Persian Empire is basically, and it was the Medes and Persians to begin with, they kind of joined together, and, and they were pretty much conquered all the territories, and things have kind of settled down for the most part, uh, and, and Nehemiah is uh, a servant to the king, we'll talk more about that, but so we're jumping into a scene here where Nehemiah has just got some information that is really troubling to him, and so uh, as we jump into it, it we're, we're in the book. In fact, if you want to, uh, in your Bibles or on your devices, uh, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the Old Testament, just about the center of the Old Testament, not the center of the Bible, but about the center of the Old Testament. Uh, if you're looking and you'll, you know, first, second Chronicles, you'll get to uh, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. That's, that's that area. And we're going to look at this book for, for the next couple of months, probably, as we walk through some of the things that took place in this situation that we're going to introduce this morning uh, and just see what, how God intervenes and how, how God steps up to the plate because that's what Nehemiah witnesses. So as we begin in chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, he's, he's the one, this is his journal. He is, he is recording what he actually experienced. And he says, Hanani, one of his brothers, and a physical brother, not just a Jewish brother, but actually one of his brothers, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So we're in this situation. Uh, uh, Nehemiah is up in the Persian. He serves, actually works for the king of Persia. Uh, there's a group that has just come from Nehemiah's Jewish. And so there's a group, including his brother, who have just returned. They've been down to Israel, down to Jerusalem, and, and they've returned back. And so he says, hey, how, how are things going back there? They said to me, those who survived. Now, just those three words tell you something, don't they? You know, it's, it's, it's those who have survived. You know, I, I was talking to one of the guys right before first service, and, and I say, hey, how you doing? And he says, well, I'm above the ground. <laughs> and that's sometimes what we feel like, isn't it, you know? Uh, I got a pulse. Hey, <laughs> we got a pulse, you know? So uh, they, they're in one of those times where they've survived, but that tells you that it's been, it's been a tough time. And it also tells you that some haven't survived. 
Uh, so, so right away you're, you're stepping into the middle of circumstances that are troubling. Those who have survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Even those who have been fortunate enough to survive, things are not going well. They're, they're in the middle of a really rough situation. And as we get into this, we'll find out they're surrounded by enemies. Not only are they, not only are they surrounded by enemies who are openly uh, wanting to destroy them, wanting to finish off. They don't appreciate the fact that some of these Jews have come back to this territory, uh, and so they're trying to, to push them out or wipe them out. But, but some are even in the midst. It's, it's really a mess. And so it's a troubling time for those folks. Then he goes, they go on. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. So, so we're, we're finding this situation where as Nehemiah gets word from his home country, although he's never been there in his entire life, it's, it's where his ancestors is from. His heart is in Israel. His heart is in Jerusalem. When, when Mary Lou and I a number of years ago went to Israel, we're on the flight, and it's a 14-hour flight, and there comes a point on that flight, most of it takes place overnight for, you know, on our particular flight, but as it gets time for the sun to rise, the, the pilot gets on, or, or maybe the attendant, I don't remember, and makes the an announcement that it's about time for the sun to rise. Now, this is a, a uh, Jewish airline, uh, Israel airline, and when he makes that announcement, a whole bunch of folks start getting up from their seats, and they head back, and, there's, and I look back, and he's actually, they've curtained off this area, and what those folks are doing, they're, they're, they are Israelites, and they're going back behind the curtains, and they're turning to face Jerusalem, and they're praying for God's blessing on Jerusalem, which is an Old Testament command. And, and they, they took that very seriously. So this is an important thing. So as he gets this word about what's going on back in his ancestors' territory, his, his heart is broken. And one more thing I want us to know about Nehemiah, just to get a little perspective here. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. If you're watching that video, you got a little bit of a clue. But, you know, that's a lot more than... The guy that comes to the king and says, hey, uh, what kind of wine do you want with your dinner tonight? White or red? You know, uh, is it fish or beef or what are, we, what are we having? Or even, you know, hey, you want uh, pop tonight? Uh, you know, what, what, what kind do you want? Pepsi? You want, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. The cupbearer had, had a tremendous responsibility. And, and in fact, uh, a couple of things about him and came up in the video. It said he's the bodyguard. And, and let me tell you about the cupbearer. His responsibility was to protect the king, not so much uh, in the sense of sword and shield and, you know, uh, uh, kind of like the, the president's secret service, but a, a little different direction. Uh, it was not uncommon for kings and rulers to meet their demise by some kind of a poison in their food or in their drink. And so as the cupbearer, his responsibility was to watch the preparation of the food and the drink and, and even at times, if the king wanted him to, to actually taste the food and drink the cup to make sure it hadn't been poisoned. You know, you lived through it, okay, it's good for me to go. And, and so he, in many ways, he, he, was, he was a protector of the king. In fact, you can understand if he's in this position, that, remi- that means the king has a tremendous uh, relationship with him. 
a, a complete trust in this individual that not only does he care for you enough that he would never let someone uh, harm you uh, or, or even bribe you, uh, that, that he's in your corner. And so, so he was the king's most trusted servant. Not only that, he was like, operated like the prime minister because he would, the king looked to him for counsel. They were, they were so close that he was his main counselor. He's the one he'd bounce ideas off and, and direction. And, in, and even further than that, he was uh, the, the one the king would use to, to relay his commands. He was second in command. And, and uh, he could trust him to have the heart or the desires of the king in mind as he delivered the king's edicts to the different people. So, so this is a, a extremely important position. And, and frankly, it, it tells you a lot about Nehemiah that as an Israelite, as a Jew, he's reached this position in the Persian Empire. That, that he's become so trusted. It's not that unusual. We know of another character named Daniel that was in a very similar position and, and probably set the groundwork for, for some of this trust that's going on. So, so Nehemiah is in a very high-level, powerful, important position in his relationship to, to the king of Persia. That's a little information about him. And, but I want us to back up because I want us to get a, just a little fill this morning of the history that has led up to this moment uh, when we have this conversation, when Nehemiah has the conversation with his brother and, and then what happens next because that's what we're going to follow in the weeks ahead. You know that uh, we're, as we talk about the Jewish people or the Israelites, we're talking about the descendants of Abraham. And you remember just a little bit, Abraham's this really no-name guy, done nothing important. His family is no big deal. Uh, in fact, the Word of God says that. But God chooses Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Not because you deserve it, not because you've done anything that, that's put you on my radar. It's simply my choice. And, and that's what the word God tells us. And, and so he chooses Re- Abraham. Now, Abraham demonstrates right away uh, this unique faith because one of the first things God tells him is, all right, here's what I want you to do. Pack up all your belongings. Leave your, your family, not your own, your children, but leave the, because he's lived in this area for generations. Leave all your family behind, and I want you to head east. And I'll tell you when you get where I want you to go. And, and that's why when you get to the New Testament book of Hebrews, that author says right at the top of the list, individuals who showed enormous faith, there's Abraham right up there at the top. Because, you know, how many of us would, you know, just, uh, that, just you know, pack up? Head well, maybe west I'd be more inclined to, but uh, but head east, and I'll tell you when you're there, and keep going until I tell you to stop. You know, but that's exactly what Abraham did. Now, Abraham, so God's going to make the na- Abraham into a nation. He promised him that, and and really the primary purpose of this nation, although they didn't do it well, and we don't always do it well as Christians either, but their primary purpose was. He was going to use them to, to tell the other nations about God. Now, what they ended up doing, as so often happens, is they began to seclude themselves, began to, instead of telling people about God, they kind of separated themselves and, and uh, said, you know, we're the ones God speaks to, and you guys are on your own. And it, it didn't work out the way that, that God had, had wanted them to and told them to do, but, but that was a heart behind it. And so for about a 1,000 years, 
we don't really hear a lot about them. They're, they're growing slowly as a family and then, and then into kind of a tribe and eventually into a nation. Moses enters the picture about partway through there, and, and we have the, the time where the Israelites are, are captive in, in Israel, and they grow quite a bit during that period of time, which is part of the reason the Pharaoh makes them slaves because he's worried they're becoming too powerful. And then Moses helps take them out of that, and then they wander in the wilderness, and eventually they come to the land that God has told them from the get-go he's going to give to them. And, and they start to, to take that land over, uh, and, and eventually they get to the point where now they're on, about a thousand years later, they're, they're on the world scene, now they're a pretty significant nation, and, and, and in fact become a world power, uh, very, very powerful uh, have a lot of enemies, in fact, uh, uh, but, but at this point, they, they decide that they've kind of reached that point where they want to establish some semblance of what the world looks like, and, and so they go to, at the, at the time they had a prophet, they go to their prophet Samuel, they say, Samuel, we want a king, and uh, Samuel says, you, you already have a king, it's God, you don't need a king, and they say, no, we want a king, and so Samuel goes to God, and God says, okay, give him a king, but give him Give him this warning. Tell him, okay, if, if, if you have a king, just know he's going to take your sons and daughters as servants. He's going he's to draft your young men to fight in battles for him. He's going to tax you, uh, part of your, your property and your funds, to help support the kingdom. Uh, he's going to take some of your land to, to, as part of his, his kingdom. And so he gives them all these heads up. He says, this is what's going to happen if you have a king. And they say, we want a king. And so God says to Samuel, give him the go-ahead. So as you know, they, they, they choose, their first king is a guy named King Saul. And I really think this is one of those times where God says, okay, let's learn some lessons early. Because King Saul, if you were to profile, if you were to say, okay, what, what would you say this, this looks like he would be a good leader? King Saul was that guy. He, he was tall. He was handsome. He came from a prestigious and wealthy family. Everything about him said, man, he'll be a great king. But you know the story, he wasn't. You know, some of those very things that maybe gave him self-assurance or, or maybe a better word is an arrogance worked against him as a king. And, and, and God tried to help Saul. He gave him information, told him how to do things. And Saul thought he had a better idea than God. And, and he, be, he was a really tragic king. Uh, in fact, he was so bad that the normal of the day was, and, and still today is, you know, a king was succeeded by someone in his own family, but God said no when it came to Saul. We're not going to go to Saul's family at all. We're going to go to an unknown family from the family of Jesse, and I'm going to pick from that family this just the opposite of what, what Saul was, this little runt, excuse me, of a guy who... You wouldn't pick out. In fact, the first time you remember, the first time that uh, Samuel was sent to anoint the next king, Jesse, his own dad, didn't even have invite David to the party. He David didn't. David was a runt. He was the youngest. He just, you know, nothing about him said to his own family that there's anything that should stand out about him. So he didn't get invited. Samuel had to say, "Don't you have someone else?" And Samuel, yeah, there. Uh, Jesse said, yeah, there's my youngest son. He said, well, get him. Bring him here. And then he's the one God chooses to be king. And David's a good king. He, not a perfect, if you know anything about him, man. He made some major mistakes like we all do. But he was a good king. And, and under him, uh, Israel uh, 
fought many battles. Had, they were surrounded. If you looked, they were surrounded by enemies, especially to the west. The Philistines were an especially brutal enemy. And, but under David's king, he was able to push all those enemies back. And by the time David's life came to an end, that nation was a mighty world-established power, and it was at peace when, when Solomon, David's son, became king. And you know a little bit about probably Solomon, very wise man uh, in, in many respects. Sometimes I like to say with him, uh, maybe initially wise, he was definitely smart. But as he went on in his kingdom, especially the latter part of his life, he really wasn't that wise. He, he started to really make some bad decisions, some bad leadership decisions, some really bad personal decisions, uh, some destructive habits began to show up. And, and so by the time it came to his in- kingdom, you know, as so often the, goes the leader, goes the nation, Really, when, when Solomon died, the nation was in a mess. And, and so much of it fell at the feet of Solomon, the decisions. He had, he had allowed false gods and false worship to come in, even taking part of it. He, he, uh, you know, he had a wandering eye. He was always adding to his concubines and to his wives. And uh, things were just falling apart. In fact, after he died, it was so bad that a civil war broke out and and. Just a tragic time in the nation of Israel. And by the time it was done, the, the Israel divided up as a nation. It, and uh, they, they split in two. You know, civil war, civil war was a tragic time. By God's grace, uh, we kind of came together. Now, you can still go to some place down south where <laughs> they're not convinced. But the, we, 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 kinda, we, we survived that. They did not. And, and by the time it was done, they divided in half. The ten tribes, the northern tribes, the blue you see there, were they, called, they kept they retained the name Israel. And then the southern two tribes, because there were 12 tribes altogether, uh, took the name of Judah, and uh, they were no longer together. They were enemies. Enemies, brothers fighting brothers, family fighting family. In fact, Charles Wendell says they'd reached their darkest hour nationally, not when they were attacked from without, but when they were attacked from within. And the walls of their spiritual heritage began to crumble. It was a sad time in the nation of Israel. And even, and even maybe sadder is, is, is they had just a, a, a slew of very evil, unhealthy kings. Especially, first of all, Israel. Israel just had one bad king after another. And, and Judah would, would have a, a bad king and then a somewhat good king. And then a, and, but it was just a, a horrific time. Just more and more evil and ungodly stuff became a part of who they were as a nation. And to the point where <clears throat> eventually, this thing is, I'm not working. Oh, there we go. Eventually, uh, God said, enough. And first of all, you have the, the uh, Assyrian cat, uh, kingdom, and Assyrian rose into power, and they were growing, growing in power as, as the nation of Israel was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because of their evil. And finally, the day came when Assyria moved in, and they captured the northern part, Israel, those 12 tribes. They captured them, and they carried them off into Assyria. Uh, in fact, Assyria had uh, they, their, their leader, their perspective of how to keep and maintain their territory is they would, they would take most of the people of that territory up into their territory, nation, and then they would take ter- another conquered territory, they'd move those people in there, and that they thought in that sense they would kind of keep them back on their hills. They could never organize themselves, and so that's exactly what you see represented there in the purple line up top and the red line, and, and uh, so that, that was the, the Israel kingdom, and then for about 150 more years, Judah did okay, because Judah, 
You know, like I say, they'd have an evil king, but then they would have a, a really good king that would kind of get them back on track, and, and God would be able to bless them, and then that would be followed by an evil king. And they'd start. But eventually, after 150 years, they were to the point, too, where God says, enough. And, and about that time, uh, the Babylonian Empire had risen into power, and, and they moved in, and, and uh, the leader of Babylon, the king of Babylon, had a whole different perspective on how to keep people in line. In fact, well... We'll read about it. Uh, as he moved in and conquered the, the southern tribes uh, uh, of Judah, he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasure of the king and his officials. And then get this, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. In fact, they, they broke down the temple as well. Uh, they burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Nebuchadnezzar, or the king of, of uh, I don't remember if it was Nebuchadnezzar first, I think it was at that point. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, his, his idea was he would go in and wipe an area that he conquered out just to utterly destroy it to the point where the people that survived, that weren't slaughtered, and he would slaughter most of them, the people that survived, some of them, the, the top, the high-quality ones, the smart ones, the ones he thought had potential, he'd take back to uh, Babylon with him, which is, we know some of those, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were, were some of those. Uh, and, but the remnant that he'd leave behind that survived, they would be so demoralized because everything would be so destroyed that he just didn't worry about them anymore. And so that's what took place, and that's the way things set until... The kingdom of Persia came to power. And if you know your history a little bit, uh, uh, a little past this time, uh, Babylon was the world power for a while. But then these two territories, the the Medes and the Persians, they joined forces. And together, they were able to defeat defeat Babylon and and take over that territory. And and then that brings us up to where we were. In fact, it's interesting. Cyrus, when when they first took over Babylon uh, and, and that territory, God moved, we're told in this passage, the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And here's what he, he decided to do. He decided to send a, a group of folks, that, of the captured folks, but now as he, as he heard the story and learned the story of the Jews, and, and he decided to send a group of them back down to the Israel, to the Jerusalem territory. Now, probably in his mind, he had a strategy. You know, if I do this for those people, then they will be loyal to me. They will feel that I have honored them. And so when enemies on the outskirts come and start moving towards us, they will let us know. They'll help protect us because they'll feel like they owe us. And so that was his heart. Now, we're told that God impressed on his heart that. You know, that's, there's that passage that says that God raises the kings and lowers the kings and, and the rulers and leaders and lowers them. And, and he moves on the heart, even of wicked kings. We, that we have no indication that Cyrus or any of the Persian kings were ever followers of God, and yet God used them uh, to do wonderful things for his people. And so that's exactly what took place. Cyrus sent a group down to start and gave them permission to start rebuilding their temple, their, their focus of worship, so there's a, and that's where we come to this point. Uh, is in fact, actually, there were there were a couple of groups. There were three phases that headed down there. The first one was this one we just read about with Cyrus. They were led down there by a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, when I was a kid and I first heard that, 
Somehow that, that hit my funny bone because Zerubbabel was sent down to build the temple up from the rubble. Zerubbabel, I don't know. Anyway, I always thought that was kind of cool. So Zerubbabel went down, but, but, and, but as they began to work on the temple, they weren't too, too successful. There were so many enemies that, you know, and here's what would happen is they would, they would they had start building the temple and then somebody would they have to deal with an enemy. Usually what would happen is one of their enemies would send word back up to Cyrus and say, Tell, tell lies about them. Say they're trying to build their own kingdom. They've already set up their own king, and they're trying to. <clears throat> they're going to uh, uh, pull away from you, and so everything would stop. The whole project would come to a, uh, complete, or, uh, to a stop. Cyrus would send something down, someone down to find out if that's what would happen. Get down there and find out that's not what's happened. Go back up and report. Then he'd send another group down and say, "Go ahead, start resume rebuilding." And then pretty soon they do another rumor thing. And so, so really not much was accomplished. Eighty years later, a guy named Ezra, in your Bibles, Ezra comes before Nehemiah. God sent Ez, uh, the king of Persia sent Ezra down to complete the work. And under Ezra, it was completed. And and then they began to reestablish their worship system. The temple was there. But the city was still in ruins. And, and the wall that had been around the city as protection was piles of rocks. It, it was just in total destruction. They had enemies all around them. that They were on constant alert. And not only that, they, had, they even had enemies in, in, in Jerusalem itself. In fact, we're going to find out, they even had enemies living in the temple that they had just rebuilt. It was an amazing thing. So, so the people down there, you know, you, you can imagine their hopes and dreams as they started, they, they finally got the temple rebuilt, and they're thinking, oh, finally we can, we can start being together as a nation again, only to have these enemies cause them such destruction that they never could get organized. And, and so they're so disheartened and so discouraged and, and just beside themselves. And that's the report then that Nehemiah gets from his brother. And it says when he heard these things, he said, I sat down. And I wept. Now, we're going to find out, and some of you already know, that God is going to use Nehemiah as the key individual to go down and straighten things up down there. But before we can get there, we need to understand the seriousness of the situation. And even before that, you've got to say, you, know, you look at individuals, because God is going to choose Nehemiah to do this unbelievable task and you got to look and say, okay, well, why? Well, I think one why, one answer to the why is right there. You know, think about Nehemiah's situation. He's probably living in the palace. Everything is supplied for him. He wears the finest of clothes. You know, uh, uh, money, taking care of his family, none of that is even an object. He, he has the ear of the most powerful individual in the entire world. He's got it made in the shade, as we used to say. And so, you know, so you look at that and you say, why would he, and he's never lived in Israel. I mean, that's just where his ancestors came from. And yeah, sure, he should, yeah, I can understand an interest. But to be brokenhearted when he hears what's happening to the people, they're people that he doesn't, for the most part, know. He knew his brother, but, you know, he, but to actually sit down and start weeping, you know, I think that's one, guy, one reason God says, this is my man, because he has a heart for others. I think that's part of good leadership. You know, unfortunately, even in the church nowadays, I think, you know, too often we don't choose our leaders based on their heart for God and their heart for people. And, and Nehemiah had that. But, but think about his circumstances in this way, too, because, you know, what's he going to be able to do? 
he's got this really important position that he can't just, it's not like he's just going to give two-week notice, you know? You can't, especially kings of Persia. You don't just walk away from a king of Persia. In fact, you don't even talk to a king of Persia unless you're invited. You look at the next book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's called the book of Esther. Esther is the queen of Persia. And if you know the story at all, you realize that there comes to this point, Esther is also a Jew in secret. No one knows that except her and her uncle and a few people. And, and, and there comes this point where a very evil man put, convinces the king of Persia, her husband, to put out this edict that the Jews can be killed at a certain day. And, and that's put on the calendar, and it's an edict of the king of Persia. And, and Esther's uncle comes and says, you need to go talk to your husband, because they're going to kill all of our people. And Esther says, you can't just go talk to the king. Even his wife can't do that. I can only go if I'm invited. In fact, if I go uninvited and he's having a bad day, he can say, kill her. I'll, I'll get a new queen. Now, in the end, she does. You remember, he gets, she gets the people praying and she says, I'll go. But she risked her life. You didn't just go. His own wife didn't just go when she wanted to. Ne- Nehemiah knew that he couldn't either. So he's in this impossible situation. Even if he wanted to do something about it, he'd have to get permission from the king. And man, I, you know, this guy could kill me. He, he's, obviously, he's not going to just want me to go. He trusts me. He needs me. And so he's really that, you know, he feels somewhat, I'm sure, somewhat powerless. On top of that, the journey down there is, is in enemy territory the whole way down. And so he, to even survive the journey is going to be an amazing thing. And, and when he gets down there, we've already talked about the fact they're surrounded by enemies. And even if he gets down there safely and, and into Jerusalem safely, who's going to finance this project? You're going to need labor. You're, going to try, you're talking about rebuilding a wall around the city. You're going to need labor. You're going to need timber. You're going to need uh, protection. How are we going to, you know, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where you say, I, I don't even know where to begin. Been in one of those before? Maybe in one right now. I, I, this is such a big deal. I don't, I don't even know where to start. You know, my marriage is so screwed up right now. I don't even know what I could do about it. My child is so messed up. I don't know where to start. You know, our finances are such a mess and such a, it's, it's just, there's no, I, I can't see a way out. I just, I don't see a way out. You know, I thought by this point in my life, I'd, I'd be able to start thinking about retirement and I figured it out and there's just no way. It's not possible. It's, it can't happen. This is, this, I don't even know where to begin. This news I got about my health. You know, what, what can I do? It's, it is, it's bad news, and it's bigger than I am, that's for sure. That's the kind of situation Nehemiah found himself in. This is huge. And he feels powerless, and, 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 and he's weeping because it heartaches for what's happening and probably for the fact that I don't know what on earth I can even do about it. So what do you do when you're in that place where you don't even know where to begin? Here's what Nehemiah did. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned. I, you know, I appreciate that that's there because sometimes we in the, in the Christian world give the impression that, you know, we should kind of ignore bad things. It's, you know, we just need to, how's it going? Wonderful, great, you know. When the reality is we're torn up inside and, and we think we have to pretend it's all great. And, and, that, and Nehemiah didn't do that. He mourned. There are things that our heart should ache about. They should make us weep. And, and, and some of the things you walk through in your life, I mean, they're, they are. They're devastating. They're troubling. They're, they're a heartache. And you don't have to pretend that they aren't because they are. I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Where do I begin? I have no clue. But I know who does. Not only does he know where I should begin, but he knows how he's going to take care of this. He's got it covered. So that's where you begin. And so often, and in fact, they don't even wait for the big things. We've got to get used to doing this on a regular basis. God, you know, I, I want to make a good decision here. Help me make a de- good decision. God, this is too big for me. And the things that are too big for me, I, you know, they're not too big for you. Help me to rest on you. That's where you begin. Nehemiah was in what looked like an impossible situation, and so the only thing he knew to do right then was to pray. What are you up against right now? What is it that's breaking your heart? What seems so heavy, so huge, so impossible? Start there. Go to God. Tell him. Not that he needs to know. You need to talk to him about this for your sake. He's got to figure it out already. He knows exactly how he's going to work out. He's already promised you and I that he'll, he'll work it out in a way that's for our good. He's just waiting for us to talk to him about it. You know, I'd ask you to do one more thing, this, taking this out of that personal realm, but I want you, we have an important meeting next Sunday night. I want you to start praying. Now, as we talk about some things, as the elders have been praying about what's next, some of them are, we've had some real encouragement. We'll share those with you. But, but we're also up against some challenges that are, they're big. They're, God's going to have to intervene. And so I want you to pray for, for all of us as we come together next Sunday evening that we'll sense God's heart and his direction and and ultimately, we will have this confidence in not ourselves because it's bigger than us, but it's not bigger than our God. And so be praying for that too, please. But whatever is going on in your life right now, starting blocks are talk to God about it. Next week, we'll continue. Father, thanks for this opportunity to begin looking into this life of an individual, which you did some wonderful things through, even though at this moment where we're leaving him this morning, it seems like an impossible task. It, it seems so far beyond him that there's really nothing he can do. And, and reality is, he's right. There's nothing he can do. But it's well within your realm, realm of power. And 
we're going to get to see you work in the weeks ahead. Thanks for each individual here. And you know their hearts, you know their situation, you know the need, you know what wall they're up against right now. And, and I pray that they are coming out of this time saying, uh, I know where to go. I need to go to my God. I need to tell him what's on my heart. So with those things in mind, we end this time this morning now. And just thank you for being there for us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.